Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hi, it's David Rothkopf, and because it's Thursday, we're coming to you from New York, uh, and I am joined, as we always on these Thursdays, by my co-host, Ryan Goodman of... NYU Law School and co-editor of Just Security, and we are pleased also to be joined on this episode by Asha Rungappa, who's a senior lecturer at the Yale Jackson Institute of Global Affairs, a former FBI agent known to many of you from her multiple, apparently regular television appearances. You appear on television more than most TV stars these days, Asha. <laughs> um, so, so I have a question for both of you guys who are professionals in different aspects of the law. Is there like a maximum number of things that you could actually, you know, be indicted for? Like is Trump <laughs> going for is is you know it's like, you know, today, you know, like that we yesterday we were worried about Ukraine and then we wake up in the morning and Trump goes out in the lawn and commits the same crime by going to China and saying, "Hey, why don't you investigate Biden in the middle of a negotiation with China, sending a message to them that if they like do a little bit of good stuff for him personally, they may get a break from the U.S. government. Same crime, does it? But well, that's it for crimes today. And then there's a new whistleblower, and the new whistleblower, um, as reported by the Washington Post, is at the Department of the Treasury, and suggested that some Trump appointee um, interfered in the audit, the IRS audit, of Trump and or Pence. Um, and every hour there seems to be something that newly brings somebody else into this conspiracy to commit these crimes, whether it's Giuliani or Barr or Pompeo or, you know, we have Sebastian Gorka in there somewhere, which is always entertaining. Um, <laughs> how, how are you keeping up, Asha? Do you walk around with a little notepad? Um, you know... You know, I actually had a research assistant last summer try to create a spreadsheet of, you know, the various crimes, investigations, uh, threads by, you know, to, to try to keep up with it all. Because it is, um, it's, you're just inundated every single day. And I think what confuses the American public, as you noted, David, is that they get to a point where they just start doing it out in the open. Um, and that's kind of a Jedi mind trick because then people think, well, if it's in the open, it can't be that bad. But no, they're, they're just committing crimes out in the open. Um, so uh, I, I, don't know, I don't know what to tell you about how to keep up. I use Twitter, but um, it's a lot. Well, you know, that's how they started out, Ryan. I mean, he got on television and he said, hey, Russia, if you're listening, interfere in the election and win the election for me. And, you know, everybody thought, well, you know, you probably shouldn't, you know, reach out to like our enemy and have them <laughs> – attack us in order so you could win. And then he like got away with that. And then he gets away with everything else. And it's like, 
every time he doesn't get convicted of a crime, I think he concludes there was no crime. Right, or he is unable to distinguish between certain rights and wrongs and legality and illegality. Um, but uh, I do think the key is for uh, the American public to stay focused. So, and, and the focus is on what are going to be the articles of impeachment for Ukraine Gate, uh, because it's such an affront to, regardless of whether or not it's a crime, um, his constitutional duties, an oath of office. It's just such egregious, abhorrent uh, behavior, and uh, the evidence is irrefutable. It's in his own words, is what he said he did, and it's in the transcript. Like, forget everything, everything else is noise. All the focus on the procedure, both in some ways, even the cover-up or blocking the whistleblower's complaint from coming to Congress or Adam Schiff did something or didn't do something, I think that's noise. I also think that in terms of staying focused, uh, it means that the, the game is about, I think on his side, normalizing it. So what Usher was saying, now doing it out in public today, I don't think that was necessarily off the cuff. I think it could have been very deliberate, um, which is if you do say it out in the open, then obviously it's not something to be ashamed of, um, then it is pitch perfect. Um, and when, when we think of crimes, you try to conceal your crime. Um, and so I think that's where the he's going to try to make this about, that it's only about politics, and it's his political opponents going out after him for political matters, and, and I think it's not that. It's about the Constitution, um, and that's what we have to remain focused on. So can, you, I, can I just add on to that, David? Sure, I, I do think that, you know, in many ways, when we keep focusing on the word crime, we unnecessarily narrow, mm -hmm. uh, or, or it, we narrow the scope and we raise the bar unnecessarily. Um, it does not have to be a violation of the criminal code. As Ryan just said, we're talking now about the Constitution, and this is what makes it different than the call out to Russia when he was a candidate. He now holds the office of the presidency, which brings with it all of the awesome powers of the presidency, and that gives him the power and the leverage and the influence over foreign affairs, almost unfettered discretion. And so when he is asking for favors, it's not just, you know, you or me being like, hey, China, can you do this for me? He actually has the capacity to impact China uh, or Ukraine or, or any other country. Um, and that is, you know, and, and, he's hold, and he's doing it while he's holding a position of public trust, which takes it beyond the scope of the criminal code and into the fundamental principles that undergird our Constitution. Yeah, and, you know, as Ed Luce, who is a regular on our, uh, on our podcast, uh, writes in the Financial Times today, uh, the, the conspiracy theories and the delusions and not to mention things like the personality um, uh, quirks and and uh, other you know twists of the mind of Donald Trump, because he's president of the United States, change the way the world works. Um, you know he, he sees conspiracy out there. He tries to enlist people one way or another in that. It it's it's driving U.S. foreign policy right now. But I want to go back, Ryan, to your point, which is that we need to stay focused on this and taking into account. Uh, Asho's, you know, reasonable guidance that we we think about crime slightly different, Healy, here, that it's not the, the, the sort of uh, legal code-driven crime and, and, and burdens of proof that you would have in a court, 
uh, if you're dealing with uh, impeachment and, and the high crimes and misdemeanors referenced in the Constitution. Um, but you still have to make the case that something actually wrong happened. Uh, and in fact, the Republicans are already saying, well, Bill Clinton committed a crime. Richard Nixon committed a crime. We need to see a crime here. So rules of evidence may be different, but we're going to have to make that case. And when you look at this and you say, well, let's narrowly define it, I guess the question in my mind is, how narrowly do we define it? Trump had a phone call with Zelensky, but Trump's phone call was preceded by a phone call to the Ukrainians saying, if you don't discuss the Biden issue, we're not going to have the phone call. So there's a quid pro quo before the quid pro quo. And that seems to have been preceded by series of activities by Rudy Giuliani and, and, and another conversation with Trump as early as the spring uh, that touched upon this set of issues. And um, there are a number of people who are involved in this, who were on the call or who were offered up by the president, both uh, Attorney General Barr and Rudy Giuliani were offered up to the Ukrainians. They must have known what was going on. Secretary Pompeo was on the call, said he didn't recall it. Now he he recalls it. Um, So there are things about this that look ongoing for a number of months. There are things about this that look conspiracy-like in terms of the number of actors involved. There are potential violations of real laws, like federal election laws, as well as violation, you know, crimes defined under the sort of constitutional definition of impeachment. And finally, sorry for the long list, but but and finally, there is also whatever, however, this connects to Russia as an issue, because, you know, you, you know, everybody's like, oh, why are we hearing so much about Ukraine? But, you know, Ukraine was represented by Paul Manafort. Rudy Giuliani went to go and see Paul Manafort for advice on how to deal with this Ukraine issue. Uh, Donald Trump was pushing the Ukraine to embrace a Russian line from Putin. The reason Putin put his thumb on the scale of the 2016 election was to get sanctions lifted for going into Ukraine. Just this week, we the new president of Ukraine going, yeah, okay, but essentially you guys can have that part of Ukraine. You know, here's an, here's another settlement, which Trump was pushing for. So staying focused even within the mm. bounds of this crime seems challenging. Does um, so I, I think that it's still uh, part of the focus is to understand the scope of the crime. Um, so uh, it, I do think we uh, narrow it too much by thinking just about the phone call. It's the phone call is part of a scheme uh, that was ongoing. Uh, just to add other elements in that scheme, it's the April uh, phone call between Trump and Zelensky that precedes the July twenty fifth phone call, in which the New York Times reported that on that call. Trump asked Zelensky to coordinate with Giuliani on corruption cases, and we now know what all that is code for. Um, And then there's the Washington Post report from uh, last night, which says that uh, Trump basically told Pence to tell the Ukrainians that their aid 
a, a $391 million aid package to save 45 million Ukrainians from the Russians was dependent upon them working on the corruption cases that he had identified in his call with Zelensky. That's the quid pro quo. It's like another just <laughs> another smoking gun uh, bomblet or something like that. Um, but I think that's to focus on that. And I do think when we start to peel back, there will be more coming uh, about Russia, um, potentially. Um, but that's, I do still think that's the set of factors and the violation. We can start to look at the criminal code, but I think that starts to be the distraction that Asha talked about as well. It's about the abuse of power where he's supposed to be taking care to faithfully execute the laws of the United States and protect the American public. And instead of engaging in foreign policy, he is engaging in uh, use of the power of the presidency for his own personal political gratification. And I think that's the uh, red line that no uh, nobody, no American, should allow any president uh, to ever cross. Um, which he seems to cross on a <laughs> daily basis. Um, <laughs> Uh, Asha, before I uh, go to you to respond and get your reaction to what Ryan just said, I also want to welcome to the podcast Harry Littman, uh, who is an attorney and a law professor, a former U.S. attorney and deputy assistant <coughs> attorney general, and is the host of the excellent Talking Feds podcast. Um, hi, Harry. Hi, on which Asha taped, uh, appeared just a couple of days ago, actually. Uh, well, um, but, you're, you're very fortunate, and we're obviously behind the times. <laughs> um, but, but so 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 let me let me turn to Asha, and then we'll turn to you, Harry. Just responding okay. to what Ryan said, uh, the issue of keeping focused is not so easy when there's so much going on. Uh, you know what, what? What? How do? How? How do you advise? Like, what, what? How should Adam Schiff approach this? This? Yeah, I think I just. It it's, gets back to the same issue. Keep it simple, stupid. It's kiss, right? Um, you know, the uh, this is somebody who had leverage who wanted to get a personal benefit from using that leverage. I mean, it's really as simple as that. And the rest is really details of what the leverage was and, you know, how it relates back to uh, particular countries. I mean, I think we can use an analogy that we all understand in, in say, the context of corporate America. If you have a CEO that has the power to hire and fire and promote and give assignments uh, to uh, his subordinates and then asks one of those subordinates to do a personal favor, which is not uh, in the interest of the company as a whole, but really for his own personal gratification, we would see that as an abuse of his power, that there's a power differential, and that even if it's not explicitly stated that if you don't do this, I will punish you, that is understood by virtue of the fact that the superior person has the power to do it. Um, we recognize this in other areas of our law. And so you simply, you know, expand that out into this context uh, where the president is basically doing the same thing. Um, you could call it presidential harassment. You know, <laughs> um, this is uh, a form of, of using authority um, and abusing his authority to get personal benefits. So, Harry, one of the things we're talking about here is that there are lots and lots of crimes, potential crimes, apparent crimes, um, uh, Things coming down the pipeline that could be crimes, um, and and 
the, the, the issue is how do you approach it? Um, and as a, as a, as a, a, a former uh, member of the Office of the U.S. Attorney and uh, 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 someone familiar with how DOJ works, there's a way to approach this um, in, in terms of the prosecution of a traditional crime. But, but, but this is going to be approached by the Congress uh, as part of an impeachment. And I'll just give you one additional example um, to, to what we've been discussing previously that Ryan just brought up. If Mike Pence was part of this, if Mike Pence was actually carrying forward this effort, um, Mike Pence is a beneficiary. He's actually the only other individual beneficiary of this pressure on the Ukrainians, right? He is personally will benefit if Trump and he, uh, arguably, are reelected. Um, and whether you include Pence in this is gigantically important because if you impeach Trump and Pence, Nancy Pelosi becomes the president of the United States. So it's, right. it's, it's a very, very big deal. Um, how, how, how do you tackle this um, uh, abundance of, 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 well, riches is not the right word, but... Uh, 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 You're right, targets as a prosecutor. Um, so, look, my watchword would be Asha's about trying to keep it simple, but keep it simple in political terms, because as a, as a high crime and misdemeanor, I mean, it's really crystalline. It's not simply I, I, I agree with the analogy that Asha just proffered, but it's it's substantially worse in a way that dovetails with exactly what the framers wrote about when you need impeachment, because the. Uh, what he's, you know, proffering, the money he's throwing around belongs to the United States that and has a very important national security uh, objective that he is um, undermining sharply. If you were thinking about it in criminal terms, we have the roadmap. It's the Mueller roadmap. It's volume one of Mueller. And, and whereas in that instance, you know, we had Trump saying, um, if you're listening, Russia, but there was a final uh, difficulty in stitching the, it back together. Here, it's straightforward. I mean, he committed a sort of offense on the on the South Lawn today when he when he uh, shouts out to Ukraine and to to China. We know there is the uh, the real sort of conspiracy that um, they that that Mueller. Um, tried uh, but couldn't quite um, uh, stitch together. But it, but as you say, it's all going to play out on the political side. I think in some ways it's stronger because of the clear abuse of power without regard to criminal um, liability, and the, the 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 possible violations become beside the point. I think Pelosi and the Dems need to, and by all indications, they are going to, you know, focus very clearly on the single. I, I, you're right, by the way. I don't want to say single event. You you detailed um, very well the whole um, backstory and the months of, of Giuliani and and Pompeo and others actually paving the way for this clear demand. Play ball with um, with Trump on getting dirt for Biden or else you don't get your 400 million. So I would just 
try quickly and cleanly to stay focused on on that. And they'll have a wealth of, of witnesses to, to uh, try to speak to. And in some ways, the whistleblower complaint gives them a roadmap, again, not for a crime, but for an impeachable offense. So one of the problems here, Ryan, is that the jury is the Senate of the United States. And in order to get a conviction from that jury, 20 Republicans have got to switch from towing the party line to actually voting to um, remove the president from office. And so this is not simply a legal case in which you argue the merits uh, and look at the letter of the law. This is a political case. And Trump is fighting the case his own way. Uh, One might say recklessly, you know, fighting with the press and saying, no, this is perfectly fine and saying, see, look, I'm doing it again. Nothing's happening to me. Um, and, and even today, as we're sitting here talking about this, uh, apparently uh, one of the uh, uh, factors that's, that's weigh, weighing on the minds of the, 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 the president and his, his colleagues in the DOJ, apparently Attorney General Barr, is that the whistleblower in the Ukraine case is a Democrat. Now, there are more Democrats than Republicans in the United States, and of course the U.S. government is full of people who have political views and should, in fact, um, who don't let it color the outcome. Um, But the reason it's come up is because this will get a certain number of Republicans to say, I'm not sure this guy is trusted even though the whistleblower actually has nothing to do with the case. doesn't matter who the whistleblower was. It matters whether the thing happened or not, right? mattered whether the thing is done. But, um, the, you know, the, this is a case that turns on a political issue. Can you get 20 Republicans to think that if they don't vote this way, they will lose their jobs? Because you can't conclude that they're going to do it on the basis of conscience, Right. So I'm just I'm just wondering how you think that colors this and if it's, in fact, unwinnable, given that that set of uh, factors. Um, so. So, sure. Uh, let me just uh, accept the terms that you framed it in. If we just think that <clears throat> that, the, that there is a way in which this might happen and the way it happens is based on an instrumental calculation of their own political survival um, and interests. Um, then first of all, just to maybe change the benchmark a bit, I just think something that could be injected into the conversation is, what if it's not 20 Republicans, but it's 18, and he doesn't get impeached by two votes? I think that is such a shock to the legitimacy of his presidency that he doesn't get re-elected. So so that's one way of um, ushering him out. Um, And then the second, I suppose, is... um, so what will affect the Republicans? Well, I think one question is how much is the question going to be raised in the Senate when some of the Republicans are beyond uh, the primaries or don't no longer have a primary threat? So that might change their calculation because then they're going to go into these debates against their Democratic opponent and it's going to be asking questions like, do you think, do you support the president's statement that, a- that Adam Schiff is committed treason and should be potentially executed if the old laws apply? Yeah, they're going to have to distance themselves from him because his management of the the of the public messaging around this is so toxic. Um, and 
Uh, then I also think that the egregiousness of the behavior is so great that maybe that will also shift things. So, you know, there's one poll out this past week that I think it had something like over 20% of Republicans favor an impeachment inquiry. That's something. I think it's safe for more Republicans in the House to now say they favor investigating the president for this conduct, though they wouldn't necessarily call it for impeachment. That's something that's shifting. Um, the You know, the one uh, other political, uh, sorry, um, poll that came out this past week that a lot of people noticed was the poll that said only 40% of Republicans and only 60% of independents think that Trump mentioned Biden on the call, uh, which I think means that there's a lot of room for growth <laughs> there. Um, and like the Nixon impeachment hearings, then new information will become will come about, and it will no longer, as you say, uh, it would be about the whistleblower. It's about the facts, the allegations, the fact that there are going to be other witnesses that were actual maybe direct witnesses or fact witnesses to the call and to the preparation for the call and to the cover-up of the call. Um, and we know that the inspector general, in fact, spoke to some of those witnesses before making the determination that the whistleblower's complaint was credible. So I think that um, combination of factors might be what could potentially shift this because they are politicians driven by instrumental calculation. That actually is a reason that this could be dynamic. So, Asha, one component of this that's of some interest to me is that, and, you know, not to mention everybody else in America, is that it seems like the DOJ is not the DOJ we used to have, right? It seems like, you know, there used to be some assumption, there used to be at least a fig leaf, that the senior political officials in the Department of Justice were actually interested in justice, in serving the law, um, and they would at least pretend to try to do that. And in this particular case, they've dropped all the pretense, and, and Attorney General Barr is actually out there being the attorney for the president, flying around the world, trying to impeach an investigation that was conducted in part by the FBI that works for the Department of Justice, not to mention the intelligence community. Uh, and it also seems that there are a host of cases uh, that we sort of, at the time of Mueller, were entrusting to the justice system 12 other cases that were not uh, being pursued by Mueller but being, were being pursued by other offices of, of, of the United States attorneys around the country, and those seem to have been dropped. And in the case of the whistleblower thing, they, were, they looked at it and they dismissed. They said there really isn't anything here. Did, uh, did, I mean, should we stop paying the electricity bill in the Department of Justice and the, and the FBI? Is this, you know, are they sort of over as a, as, a, as, a, as a factor until the end of this administration? When you talk to friends from the FBI, what's the reaction to this complete, you know, entry into the upside down? I think that the DOJ will be one of the biggest casualties of this administration in terms of the damage that Trump has done to it as an institution and what it's going to need to do to repair itself in the minds of Americans um, in terms of being an impartial arbiter of justice. You know, the Department of Justice and the FBI have been the crown jewels of our government, in my opinion. I, I would say um, on par with and perhaps even more so than, say, the Supreme Court um, in, in its ability to maintain a certain level 
of distance and independence over the decades and across administrations. Um, and we really have put all our faith in that. And I think that we saw that with how much we counted on Robert Mueller mm-hmm. to kind of, uh, you know, do this investigation and, and um, expose, you know, the wrongdoing. I think some of that faith was misplaced, not because Mueller didn't do his job, but because we have a very unique kind of case here, which combines both criminal elements and national security elements, which makes it hard to show the whole story to the American people. Um, I think the lesson here is, you know, that so much of the independence of the Department of Justice has been built on norms um, that have been observed by uh, presidents um, across administrations and that just simply haven't been in this case. you know, a, a historian at Yale, Beverly Gage, who's writing the definitive biography of J. Edgar Hoover, you know, talked about how the independence of the FBI was kind of shaped by him. Um, you know, he mainly for his own benefit, he wanted to have this kind of uh, fiefdom that no one could touch, but he actually um, never registered with a political party and I think never voted because he did not want to have any kind of, uh, you know, he didn't want to be beholden to anyone. But that has been shaped into kind of what we know today. I I think that, frankly, the people who work in the FBI and DOJ are super depressed right now. I am. I mean, just as a former agent, and I think um, Harry might agree that former prosecutors, it's, you know, you're kind of mourning um, a certain culture that you believed in and that we're seeing fall apart. So I really wish I had something super optimistic to say, but really, um, you know, we've just kind of handed over the keys to people who don't observe those norms anymore. I hope that we'll do it after this administration is over, but even then, um, I don't think it's going to go back to normal anytime soon. So, Harry, you were a U.S. attorney. What's your view on this subject? Yeah, it's it's kind of heartbreaking. So first, morale is abysmal, exactly as you know Asha says. So it's a really difficult place to to work. You know your your supposition, um, David, about the the you know was much more than a fig leaf. Anyone who who worked there, and I worked there over the years for different administrations, as others did, felt it. You know, absolutely and the unshakable conviction that, that, you know, by and large, including political appointees from uh, different administrations really prosecuted without fear or favor. And there was such a strong culture there to reinforce it. It's been hard to uproot, but it has, I think, been uprooted in large part, not, not all the way, you know, to the root and branch of all, of all prosecutors, but people have really been, really, you know, whipsawed hard into taking positions in, in favor of uh, Trump. And the thing is, the the um, the faith that Asha describes is so hard won and so fragile. There's no way to really, once that confidence of the American people is lost, it hurts, you know, the Department of Justice mission and every single prosecutor who stands up in front of a jury that now believes that, in fact, it's political considerations and, and rather than the merits that drive those decisions. So that's why it, would be, it will take just a lot of time to try to put the, uh, the eggs back together, as, as it were. It's, it's really a, a body blow 
that has anyone who um, has a, a, a proud sort of past with the Department of Justice pretty glum. Well, you know, I, we tend to be caught up in the news, and I wasn't really sure where this conversation was going to lead. But, um, you know, I think this is a, a, an important discussion to have. And, Ryan, one of the things that we've seen over the course of the past 30 years of, of U.S. history is that when norms get exploded, they don't tend to recover. When um, Robert Bork was uh, rejected as a Supreme Court candidate for arguably political reasons, but using certain kinds of techniques um, that, that it was ultimately called being Borked, you know, we started down a road that has led us to an entirely politicized judicial approval process. Um, Kavanaugh is the most recent example, but, um, you know, you have uh, a Republican administration putting up people who are incredibly unqualified for the posts that they're going to hold for their lifetime in some cases. And, and yet that's where we are. That's where the decay was. Same thing true with the rules of the Senate. When, there, there used to be certain kinds of rules and there used to be certain kinds of standards and one by one they get blown up to the point that the process is controlled entirely by the majority. The minority has very few rights within it, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, and I guess the question becomes, you know, it's, it's not just will Trump be there or not. You know, I, I, I think there's a 90 percent chance that... 16 months from now, Donald Trump will not be the president. I don't know whether he's going to stop being the president four months from now or 16 months from now, but, but there's a pretty good chance that he, that he won't. You know, there's a chance he will be, but let's, let's just take that and set that aside for a second. Going to Asha's point, going to Harry's point, you know, are kids going to want to go to law school and go and work for the U.S. government if they see that this is the case? Is the next administration going to say, well, Mitch McConnell was screwing us. We're going to screw Mitch McConnell. Um, is it going to say, we're going to protect our boss the way you protected your boss? Is it, you know, are, are, we, are we watching the decay of institutions or can we recover from? Um, so, yes, yeah, super hard question. Um, I, mean, I think that there are ways in which a lot if, of... If you want easy yeah. questions, you could go to Pod Save America, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, at one level, I think that... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I, <laughs> can we take that out of the... Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, in one level, I think that, so an optimistic uh, road in on this is um, that I do think that the impeachment of a president, even if it is not a conviction in the Senate, is itself such a shock to the system that uh, the system might recalibrate after that to recognize how much of a norm violation the president engaged in for the system to act with its very last line of defense, which is Congress exercising the impeachment power. And that it might therefore be like a, a post-Watergate moment in which we do try to rebuild institutions in light of what we've learned terms of the pockets of uh, discretion and abilities to abuse power um, and uh, start to create institutions and structures that put in place uh, ways in which we otherwise have just relied on norms that have not been um, 
enforceable by law or and, and the like. So th- certain certain aspects in which we start to rebuild that, and you know, to think about it that this might be because it's taking place during an election season that we might have Democratic uh, primary candidates speaking about what they would do to constrain the executive. And just by one example, Elizabeth Warren has said some pretty, um, uh, what, what, let me choose the word properly, but she's been saying some pretty strong things about how the president must be constrained by congressional authority before using force, which is a remarkable thing, and it will have its own political track, a uh, political gravitational pull if she is but the president in terms of... Well, there is the whole Constitution thing. Yeah, no, no, but she's... My understanding is that some of the statements go beyond what we would think uh, a president might need to, in an extreme emergency, go to Congress for. So, But the point being that I think it's part of now the discourse and the conversation about constraints in the executive. So that's that's the optimistic uh, take on part of it. But I also think, and in another optimistic take, I do think that it's actually healthy that our children, you know, I have uh, two kids that we, this is part of the conversation, uh, have a healthy um, skepticism about authority. Um, and it's not just that the president can be trusted to do the right thing for the American people um, necessarily. And I think that's maybe, and you know, post-Watergate is, there's a, there's a real upside to post-Watergate, which is a cynicism in some respects, a healthy cynicism about governmental authority. Um, so those are, the, those are parts of the upsides. Um, but I think there, there's a huge part of the downsides, which both Harry and Asha were identifying that um, might stay with us for a very long time and hard to recover from. So Asha, Ryan's kids have problem with authority. That's, <laughs> you know, could have to do with Trump or Ryan, right? I mean, your kids probably respect you, right? They do what you say. <laughs> La- laughter and silence in the background. Um, so here's another dimension of this thing. We only have a couple of minutes left. But um, the, the Nixon case included not just the president being confronted with the possibility of impeachment, but a whole host of people around the president being indicted and convicted for crimes. Mm. In this case, if you take the very, very narrow instance of the Ukraine case, and we'll argue you know, later, we can discuss that you know, there are many, many other crimes that could be associated with the president, you do have the vice president, the secretary of state, Rudy Giuliani, um, uh, and others who are involved in it. But we have this dysfunctional DOJ um, process. Are they all going to walk? I mean, the Congress is not going to undertake to impeach, you know, seven people. It's, you know, it's not going to do it, and it can't do it with, in the case of Rudy Giuliani. It, it, is the current state going to, you know, of, of our justice system going to mean that a bunch of people who did the, you know, committed crimes are going to get away with it? I, I don't know. Um, I think that it's it's possible, um, you know, and I think we're left also with a potentially unsavory possibility that, you know, if if Democrats do win next year, do they then use the DOJ to prosecute? Right people who may have been walked free, which then I think, you know, in, in some, for some people will feel like vindicating justice and for others will only um, solidify a sense of politicization um, in the Department of Justice. So we're just really in um, a re- an uncomfortable place when it comes to our democratic values, right? Uh, if we get out of our tribal 
uh, affiliations and, you know, the zero-sum game of I win, you lose, um, everybody's losing right now um, when it comes to um, our institutions. Again, I think to just circle back to where we began this conversation, I think the key here is to remember that right now we are pre- we are facing an unprecedented threat, um, which is the person in the Oval Office. I mean, he really does pose a national security threat to the United States. When you have someone who sees the agencies that he oversees and his own power as being there to further his own ends, whether or not they are aligned with the interests of the United States, that in and of itself is a problem. And, um, you know, Harry and I were at the Texas Tribune Festival this past weekend, and, our, you know, he, he wasn't on this panel, but I was on with um, a few other prosecutors. I actually posited to the audience that I think that we need to be prepared to make a trade-off, at least with the president, that it might be worthwhile to let him walk um, if he just steps down, you know, Um, I know people want to see him in an orange jumpsuit. I want to see him out of the Oval Office. Um, I I think that when you have, and this is my FBI background coming in, I think that when you have people who engage in a pattern of uh, corrupt behavior, they'll do it again at some point. And, um, you know, it's like O.J., you know, he he walked free, and then, you know, he went and committed more crimes and ended up in jail. So, um, I think that that is still out there, but I think for I think that we shouldn't discount the possibility that even as things get uncomfortable, and we're talking about the Senate, things could get so uncomfortable for Trump um, that he may be willing, especially if, if his electoral prospects uh, grow dim. He doesn't want to lose. That would be a huge humiliation for him. That there could be a way that he saves face by quote unquote quitting um, under you know, a deal that lets him walk off and, you know, create his own TV network or whatever. And I I still think that would be a net benefit to the United States. So, Harry, we're getting towards the end here, but there's sort of two questions that are associated with what Asha just said, one of which is, you know, what do you do after the fact? Do you go and do you prosecute these people when you can prosecute them? And there's the, the... the challenge there or the, 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 the conundrum of do you do it because that's the right thing to do and you're protecting the law or do you not do it because you want to heal the divisions that exist within the, within the country. But the, you know, apropos specifically of the case of the president, if you let him walk and that preserves the GOP administration and you end up with President Pence and Mitch McConnell where they are, then a bunch of the things that we're talking about here within the court system and uh, with uh, uh, Bill Barr and so forth will go unchanged. And the only thing you'll get rid of is, is, is Trump. So I guess I'm posing the same question to you. Right. Um, but with the caveat of everything Asha just said. Right. Well, look, you know, I think in a, in a way Nixon is the right um, precedent to look to for both aspects of your question. There was a lot of bloodlust in, in 1974 and um, outrage at Ford, but I, I think history has basically um, sustained his judgment that, you know, it was, it was time to try to cool the waters if you could. I, for for um, one, would, for two now, with Asha, would take the deal in a heartbeat because 
for all his malevolence, the, his bigger um, uh, damage is to the, the, the country and our norms. But the big difference in, in the, in the, if that were to happen, it's like Nixon. There's a definitive judgment of the body politic to reject him. I think it's pretty unlikely. And so our, the, the question back to the, the health of our institutions will be, if he is impeached but not convicted, will there be a kind of precedent now built in to um, the political assumptions that, that validates this kind of level of, of outrageous behavior? You know, what, what will it, I, I, certainly if he's, I think if he resigns, walks with a, with a deal, um, uh, he, we, we begin as in Watergate to reshape things. But if he doesn't, if he, if he survives and even is reelected, the question, you know, becomes what, what will future presidents, uh, you know, be able to get away with or, or what will it take to restore the basic health of the democratic institutions that he has so harmed? So I'm going to give you the last word here on this, Ryan. Should Deep State Radio extend to the president the opportunity to step down so we can all move on? I think he'd make a very valuable co-host. He would make a valuable <laughs> co-host. <laughs> Good luck. The two of you can have a great time. That's one I'll, that's one I'll, that's one I'll pass on. But do, do you agree that you know the, 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 the major focus post this is going to have to be on healing? Um. Yes, and I, and I think whoever the next president is, if they can try to bring parts of the country back together, exactly what um, dovetailing with what Ash had said before in terms of the tribalism that's set in and the zero sum, uh, that we we just can't survive if that's going to be part of it, and if that's part of our media environment, we need somebody that can actually uh, try to forge a very different. Um, political understanding uh, within the American community in a certain sense. And I think that's vital. Uh, so the, the way in which he leaves the scene is, is important to how that can be set. Um, okay. Well, it seems that there is a, a consensus here on these points. Um, and uh, since I don't know if I agree with you guys, I'm just going to keep my opinion to myself. Um, <laughs> you've, you've all been... You've all been, you want the orange jumpsuit. I do. I would like to see... <laughs> I, I think there is a danger to not um, holding people accountable for their crimes. And I think that one of the things that reduces the likelihood of sort of institutional recidivism, in other words, that we get somebody else who comes back in and does the same thing, is that they see that there were some consequences mm -hmm. as opposed to the kind of traditional white collar sort of golden parachute. You know, you do something wrong, you're out the door, it's not going to be so bad, you go live at Mar-a-Lago. I don't know. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that, but you guys make some very compelling points. Uh, obviously, this is something for all of our listeners out there in Deep State Radio Land to ponder. And uh, there will be many more facts to color their views of this case over the weeks and months ahead. And we encourage them to come back uh, and join us again, as Asha has um, and as uh, Harry has. And please, guys, come back again. Ryan will be here every week um and we will we will we will grapple with these issues until ryan replaces me with donald trump as his co-host um, in the not too distant future um in, a, with, in an orange jumpsuit in an orange in an orange jumpsuit which is an image we'll go to video 
immediately at that time. Make Deep State Radio great again. Yeah, make Deep State Radio. Hey, wait a minute. I thought we were great. <laughs> no, and, no, no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. And, right. and let's not forget Talking Feds, um, which hey. is, is, is a great podcast, and, and everybody should listen Thank to so that as, as well. Um, and uh, we'll see you again next week. And by the way, go to the website, thedsrnetwork.com. Look at our other stuff. Read the stuff that's there. And become a member. You know, our membership, I'll just tell you, we started membership a year ago. We've just looked at it. 90% of our members have renewed. Many of them have upped their renewal rate. That's super high above the norms in these kind of things. Um, and uh, we're very proud of that. And I think it's because of shows like this with people like this. So thank you very much. And we'll talk to you again next week. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.